It says that God is near the brokenhearted, and that's what we were when we were crushed. Like if you put a grape on the floor and you put your foot on top of it, that's what we felt like for a long time. And I knew that God wasn't going to leave us alone. Welcome to the Storytellers Live podcast, where everyday women share stories of hope. I'm Robin, and I am here with Katie and Lindy, and we are your podcast hosts. Today, we are bringing you Lee Reader's story from Tupelo, Mississippi, and we actually had a story from Tupelo last week (laughs) as well. Lee spoke this past August at our Your Story Matters retreat in Tupelo, and so if you have been a listener for a while, you heard us talk about that back in the summer. So we have had Lee's recording for quite some time, and we worked a little bit on the sound, and we feel like we've gotten it to a good place where you all can hear it. That's right, Robin. You know, we consistently get requests for stories about addiction. And while that is what Lee's story is about her son who struggled with addiction, it's also a story really of hope for moms. She gives some wisdom at the end of her story for moms, especially just walking in freedom uh, with your children's choices. So I think you're just really going to be touched by her vulnerability. And we're so thankful for her story. Here's Lee. You all hear us talk about Patreon a lot because it is such a fun community. We love all the extra content that's there. We love when our storytellers give us all the scoop, all the stuff behind their story, what else is going on. And this month, the end of January, on January 27th, for only for our Patreon members, I'm going to do a story coaching class. It is a two-hour workshop that we're calling Discover Your Story, and it is on Zoom. And so on the 27th from 11 to 1 Central Time, I'm going to walk you through your story, and y'all would love for you to join us. We've done this once before, and it was the best time. So if you are not a member of Patreon, go join today to hop in on this class. And if you are a member, you'll see that we're um, posting on Patreon a place for you to sign up. And so you can look in the link right now at the very underneath at the end of the podcast episode. You can find the link to join Patreon, or you can go to our website at storytellerslive.org and sign up and join us today on January 27th. First, let me say that I don't think I've ever known there wasn't a God. I know that he had a son named Jesus, and just like me, he lost a son. I feel really lucky, or you may think that I'm I'm narrow and sheltered, but I've only ever been a member of one church, and that's First Presbyterian Church in Tupelo, Mississippi. Most of what I learned, I was taught either by regular attendance or more importantly, I witnessed God's work by the saints who attend First Presbyterian. I have to mention my mom because she's really a very strong and faithful lady and I watched her struggle and and I just learned so very much from my mother. This is completely out of my comfort zone. I may never answer the telephone ever again while I'm playing golf, and I see that my friend Tina Rose calls, especially on hole number 16. The first time that she called me, Wilson was playing in a tournament in Covington, Louisiana, at a place called Ocean, and Jeff was with him. That's my husband and Wilson's father, and Jim Rose, Tina's husband who was our golf professional at our country club and he was a teacher and a mentor to my children. I answered the phone and Tina told me that 
her dad had passed away and she had been taking care of him. And we also knew in that same conversation that Wilson had won this tournament. So it was a sad and happy conversation. The second time I answered the phone, Tina wanted to talk to me about storytellers and the Bible study and this ministry and how she felt like I could play a role in that and perhaps be helpful to moms like me. The second thing that I need to tell you is, and I've already mentioned, I've only ever been a member of one church, but I'm Presbyterian. And so I wasn't really taught to tell stories. And, and we don't really ever say that T word, which is testimony, but we're more of like a little organized group of committee workers. And you'll know that I love Jesus by how I, my actions. So I, let me start at before September of 2017. Before that time, I would say that we were a normal little family of five. I married my high school sweetheart, Jeff. We had three children. Wilson, Kirk, and Ross. We were involved in our church, our school, our community, and sports. Wherever wherever our kids were, we were there. Our lives were not perfect, but we were perfectly normal as, I guess, Tupelo, Mississippi gets. I did a lot of laundry. I cooked a lot. My house is messy. We hunted fish, played golf. We did lots of travel sports. My world revolved around my children. My mother lives very near me and Jeff. In 2012, Wilson graduated from Tupelo High School, and he was set to attend Mississippi State as a preferred walk-on to play golf. It was his dream. It was where he wanted to be. We were excited for him and proud of him. He was excited, but... Wilson was always a little nervous and apprehensive about anything new. He he was extremely self-confident as long as the world was what he knew. But when new things came, he there was just something odd. You could really never put a finger on it. That semester did not go as according to plan. And in February of uh, 2013, he comes home from Mississippi State. We're sort of figuring out where to go, what what he's, what we ought to do in this interim period. And a local junior college coach called, and Wilson decided to play for David Rather at ICC, which is Itawamba Community College. He played there two years. The only way that he would agree to play there was he he wouldn't even entertain the thought of going to school at somewhere that he could not live at home. He was perfectly content to be back in what was comfortable and with us. Uh, He stayed there for two years. He graduated from ICC. His grades were good. He played well. He did not ever play well, good enough to get to back to a D1, but he had offers to smaller places and he decided to go to another school in state. But I remember distinctly talking with him like I made a pro and con list. And one of the things that he didn't know anybody there. Once again, we're back into unfamiliar 
space, not really a huge circle of friends. He was my child that had a, a good core group of good little fellas, but he was always in the larger circle, never excluded, always apart, seemed to get along with lots of different people. But anyway, we're, we're on to this new school. By, by Christmas, I really expected Wilson to say, you know what? I don't think this is a good fit. And I am playing golf, but I can play golf for the rest of my life. Um, it truly is a game of, of a lifetime, but he did not. Spring semester, March, he is home and he and Jeff went to eat breakfast at Waffle House. When they came in, Jeff said something is wrong. Until this point, let me go back a little bit and say there had never we did not have any encounters with the police. There was never jail time. There was never need for legal trouble. There was never drug paraphernalia, no marijuana pipes, no, there was nothing. He seemed like a normal American 20-year-old young man. I knew that Wilson drank probably excessively at times, but alcohol did not appear. He was just very normal for this category of American young man. He dipped grizzly, but there was nothing that was ever illegal or life-altering. So I knew something back to coming in from breakfast. Jeff just said I let him drive. I was really scared, and I had because it was his dream to do this, tested Wilson at times when I thought he didn't smile. He wasn't himself. I didn't know if it was depression. I really couldn't put a finger on it, but there was never a positive test of any kind until this March after breakfast at Waffle House. I grabbed a plastic container in the kitchen and I told him that I needed him to give me a urine sample. And he told me he wasn't going to. And I told him that I had two other children and that, that I loved him, but this was just something he was going to do. I did not ask Jeff. It was sort of a just gut. And I hope Jeff rolled with it and went with me. And he did. I took the urine sample to someone that I knew that was involved in the addiction community. When she tested the strip of urine, she looked at me and said, I do not know who this is, but this is a very sick individual. It lit up like a panel of every color. So someone asked me, you know, what was in, I don't even know. I was so dumbfounded that her face told the story and I wasn't really concerned with what it was. I just knew enough to know that you don't know me, so I'm not really a sweeping under the rug kind of girl. I have a brother that has struggled for a very long time, and I knew that this could be life-altering, and he was sick, and we needed to get help. I wasn't really sure how to do that, but I did have a very good friend whose son had struggled, and this person was in the medical community. He knew all the signs. They 
They were ahead of us in that journey, but he was smart enough to tell me how to how to proceed. He and the son came over and talked to Wilson. Wilson loved and respected him, and he he listened. So that was a true blessing from up above. Wilson left at Easter. He went. I, we knew nothing about it, but we had talked to a counselor, and this was where they suggested he go. When Wilson left, we gave him $15, Ross's cell phone, and one can of dip. When he got to Dallas, he, he called, and he was out of dip. I didn't, so I had sense enough to know, I mean, I know tobacco, nicotine is addictive, but you couldn't quit it all at one time. And so I was trying to think, how could I get him, you know, it's going to be days and he didn't know anybody to loan him money and I could overnight dip. But I remember this being like this huge me spinning, try to fix it kind of moment. I felt like I, I guess a lot of mamas feel like this, but when you're managing a calendar with three kids that are doing lots of activities, I was never the girl that limited them. I always wanted them involved, and as long as their grades were okay, and they, I could manage whatever I needed to to keep them busy and involved, because that was sort of my theory. If they were busy and involved, then they didn't find trouble. I had sense enough to realized that I had two friends in Dallas that I'd known from college. They were actually sorority sisters of mine, and I had not talked to Kathy Bailey, who we call Pearl, or Gail Hopper in, I don't know, years. I lost their numbers through cell phones, but I guess I reached out on Facebook to Gail, and she called me out of the blue and said, she called me Lee Wilson. Lee Wilson, what's wrong? And I said, I have a favor, and I'll be happy to send you the money, but this is a little embarrassing. I'm sure you probably don't know people like this, but I need some help, and here's what I need. I explained that if she could get two cans of Grizzly to this place in Dallas, I would be forever indebted to her. And she was like, "Let all right, let me stop you right there. This place is phenomenal. It is nice, and guess who lives at the next exit up from this place in Dallas? It's Pearl. Pearl takes care of it. I offered to, like, FedEx money, you know, I'll, and that she said, like, we love you, and we're taking care of him. Here's my number. Here's her number. You call me whenever. But at that moment, I also realized I had sort of been, what sort of I was, I, if you ever watched the television program with the, I think it was called the White House, I felt a lot like Olivia Pope without the good-looking coats, but she fixed stuff all the time. Like, she was forever in a spin of solving some situation, and I, I wasn't near as attractive as Olivia Pope, and I didn't have cute coats, <laughs> but I felt like I fixed stuff all the time, and I knew that I had to quit doing that. Until this time, I had never, I don't think I'd ever been apart from my boys. They weren't big campers, and nobody wanted to go away to 
those camps there, they stay gone all summer. That just wasn't, we, we were together. We, I, I became a tomboy and I certainly wasn't that. But I do remember during this time of Wilson being gone, I never felt more powerless over my life. Like, I, I mean, I'd always believed God was with me and that I needed to honor Him. But I'd always kind of felt like, you know, I made a plan, I followed the plan, and I, and I lived right. But I also have to tell you that, you know, my parents taught us that if you worked hard enough, you would, you'd always win, and quitters don't win. So I, I, re- I really remember feeling like, you know, you can work really hard, but one and one don't always add up to two. Your work does not always produce an end result of success or a win. It just doesn't. I'd always loved Philippians 4.13. I bet I said it about 1,099,000 times, especially when I watch my kids play golf, because you really can do all things through Christ, which give you strength. And that that verse was, I while Wilson was gone, I just remembered that continued to stay with me. He completed an in six weeks program, and then he went from there to Florida. We, he really did not talk to Kirk or Ross or me. Um, there wasn't a lot of contact with my mom. I don't, I can't explain any of that other than I guess he felt like it was a time he needed to get it together. Maybe he felt shame for the hurt he had caused his little brothers and us, but that certainly wasn't ever our intent. So fast forward to September of 2017. He had a job. He knew, he had come to me and told me he knew what he wanted to do for, you know, a grown-up adult job. He had paid money uh, to go take the playing test to be a club pro. So you have to pass a rules test and you have to pass a playing test and to get your car to be a club professional. I did not want Wilson to do this. Um, I wanted him to go back to school and finish. He only liked a few hours to have a four-year degree. And it was something that I just knew if he quit now, he'd never finish. And I quickly pointed out, because I have a brother that was a pro, and he loved Jim Rose, and he had been a great influence in our life. Jim is Tina's husband, so that's sort of how this friendship evolved, was through the game of golf. I don't even know how long they've been in our lives, but he's he's a great guy, and he cared more about the kids as humans than he did about their development of play, but he definitely deserves some credit for the players that he he taught my kids to be. I knew, Wilson knew, I knew, there were a few people who were members of a club, just like anywhere, that, that gave him a hard time, and so I quickly pointed out, you know, like, this is what you're, this is how you're going to make your house payment, your car payment, your kids are going to get braces because somebody's happy with the job you're doing. I mean, it, 
you know, it's a pretty place to go to work, but, and you get to do a game that you love, but there, there's a lot of personality that you're dealing with, with people that play golf, me included. I was on the list. Um, so, and I also pointed out that not only would you deal with that, but he wasn't going to be able to stay in Tupelo, Mississippi and be a pro. He was going to have to like go somewhere big and learn, you know, the country club ropes of some large place. And I remember he grinned and said, Mom, I'm not going to have to go far at all. I'm going to a Waverly. They love me down there. And it is a beautiful place, and it is close to Tupelo, but it's a beautiful golf course in West Point, Mississippi. But So every, every avenue that I tried to use to discourage, he did not buy into that. So the... The day after Labor Day, I worked at a place called Mid-South Nursery, and it was a Christmas shop, and that's the day that I began back to work. Um, My job was pretty indicative of what the kids' schedule was. So I'm setting up at Mid-South for Christmas, and I think, I don't even really know how many times, but he called me several times that day, to tell me his stomach hurt, and I told him he needed to go to the doctor, and, you know, I gave all the take Pepto-Bismol, but I don't know if he didn't go because he was afraid of being caught relapsing or if he wanted me to go with him, but he never said he did. But that whole day, he stayed in bed. The day before, he'd been with his really dear friend, Noah, and they had... I think gone to play golf, maybe gone to a movie because it started raining. But they'd had a great day, and he was with, I mean, a, a good kid, not trouble. That night, he hollered out from upstairs, and I, I was asleep, but I heard it, so I ran upstairs. He wanted me to call 911. And I, I mean, that was a little far-fetched to go from just your belly hurting to 911. But I guess he knew what was happening. I did not. He never once told me he had used or relapsed. But I did find a bottle of vodka in the bed with him. And I was like, buddy, you, you just had something to drink and we're going to have to get back on the sobriety train and figure this out and I don't know what it looks like but I'm here and and you can do this. I had no idea at that point that my life would look like this. We woke Ross up and <laughs> I don't know why I remember this but he put his backpack on his back because like he knew he couldn't miss school right that would be a big deal. We went to the hospital and from there we were in ICU. In ICU, we broke all the rules of that visitation policy, and I don't even know who all those people were that were there, but I would have to apologize if I knew they were there because we invaded their space and their corner, and and I guess they just allowed us to do that. I didn't have any idea he wouldn't be okay. After visiting with him and talking to the doctor. I remember coming back out of that visitation and there were people gathered around the door and I looked at Jeff and told him that he had to, you know, we had to give him something. We had to tell him something. 
because they were all expecting sort of a report. And I, I have no idea what I said, but words came from my mouth that I guess provided the people that were there comfort. The Blue Mountain golf team was there because Kurt played golf for Blue Mountain and they were supposed to leave for a tournament. So they were there for Kurt. I remember seeing Noah's face and I remember seeing Jim Rose and Matt Clayton. And other than that, I don't really remember much about ICU other than my fourth grade teacher, Miss Wheeler, worked there. I remember a complete stranger praying for me in the bathroom. I don't, I don't think I'd ever felt that kind of grace and love. And that is extremely humbling. After Wilson passed away, we were in a fog for putting one foot in front of the other was difficult. We had to all learn how to, Kirk had to learn to be the big brother. He'd always been a little brother. Ross had always taken orders from Wilson. We just did, it was a lot to move through every day. And uh, I read a gazillion grief books on how how to move forward and I don't at this point I guess I just realized that I was gonna have to show Kirk and Ross I just something in me told me that it was only fair that they see that we were going to live and laugh and love and that our hearts might be forever broken but we were gonna do it it's a part of that no quit, gonna win little part of how I'm wired. I read a lot. I read the box. So I was doing healthy stuff and didn't really know it. But I had sense enough to know that the only way I made it through a day was because God wanted me to. I had a couple of really good friends that I go to church with that that are in the club, this death club. You're all of a sudden connected to people that you might not have really ever known prior to this. But one was a girl named Kathy Wallace, and Kathy is a preschool teacher. And so she's real syrupy and bubbly, and, you know, she says better, not bitter, and crisscross applesauce, and, you know, just a dot, not a lot. She's real happy, and she sets a... A fine example of how to smile and love and live after the loss of a child. She she explained to me there would be waves of grief. The waves would just overcome you. But the further you got in your walk, the valleys and the peaks would be farther apart. Another person who was there often was Deborah Robinson. Um, I go to church with her as well. And she, I will call her like the president of the club because she has lost two children. And so I was fortunate enough to have those people at my fingertips to show me how to how to move forward and how to do it with grace. You know, a part of grief, you get to that point where you begin to ask why. Some people get angry with God. I remember vividly talking to my big brother one day and and I guess I was going down why, that why street. And he told me that whenever I felt the need to ask why, you couldn't argue with God, you couldn't, that you just had to trust his plan. And I needed to get my Bible 
and open and read the Bible. And wherever it was, those words would speak to me. So that's exactly what I did. I just, for the first time probably ever in my life, I was still. And I tried to listen to what he was saying to me. I did not want to be bitter because bitter is ugly and it changes your heart and makes you somebody that you're not. And I just knew that that, that wasn't healthy and I didn't, I did not want to do that. I knew at this point in my life, it says that God is near the brokenhearted and that's what we were. We were crushed. Like if you put a grape on the floor and you put your foot on top of it, that's what we felt like for a long time. And I knew that God wasn't going to leave us alone because he sends people to show you lightness and we couldn't stay in the dark. And so if there's ever a crack, you can see light and, and light cannot drive out darkness ever. So I had sense enough to continue to just pray, talk to God a lot. And he sent folks in our path to help us. We're cooking along. It's 2019. Jeff works for a small company and he lost his job. The man in the same meeting that he let Jeff go wanted to rehire him to be an independent contractor. It wasn't something we could really do, but I did remember thinking, wow, you know, you bury a child. So you think that's like your get out of jail free card. Like, I mean, I've had that trial, so I ought to be free and clear of other. But just because you listen to what God says to you and you choose to follow doesn't mean they're not going to be hard times because certainly over the past four years, we have had our share of some really hard circumstances. But I know that God is good. He was good in September of 2017. And just like he's good today, and he's with me. He's not going to ever give me something that I, he won't give me what I need to make it through that circumstance. I do remember vividly asking Wilson, so I guess this is for the moms that perhaps may think something's going on with your child, and you don't really know how, because as mothers, we feel like, it's our cross to bear. It had like, you know, they didn't make a hundred on the algebra test because you weren't good in algebra <laughs> in high school. Or they didn't do well on the history test because you didn't quiz them enough. Or it has to all ultimately be our fault. Um, I remember vividly asking him at the thermostat in the hallway because he didn't ever want to, like, he was such a kind, sweet young man. He never wanted to blame somebody else for his problem. But I felt like he had to, you know, move through that step and tell me where I went wrong, like what I did wrong, even though there was no evidence ever, like I didn't see pills or you know, paraphernalia and just like, oh, we can't do that anymore. I asked him, you know, what I did wrong. And he grinned and told me that I didn't do anything wrong, that it wasn't my fault that he was addicted to something, that this was a path he was on. And that he wanted me to know I had done everything a mama could do to ensure that he had success. And so if you're listening to me, 
I want you to understand you can't bear their mistakes. And you just can't beat yourself up for that. I do sometimes, you know, when I wanted to be sad, there's a park in Tupelo on the way to the grocery store called Burton Park. And there are homeless people who beg for food and money. And so I guess if I ever want to see the glass is half full, not empty, I know that I'm never going to ride by that park and see Wilson in that park. And so he suffers no more and he's in a better place. You know, I'm so thankful for Lee and her her vulnerability in sharing her story. When I first spoke with Lee last summer, before she shared at the Your Story Matters retreat, the first thing she said to me was, this is not in my comfort zone to do this. And I was just so proud of her. She shared her story at that retreat, and then she did it again for us for the recording. And we just could not air it because of the sound quality. We wanted you to hear that. She spoke at the end of her story about how, you know, when you share, I think there's healing, first of all, because she mentioned that to me after she shared the retreat. But she talked about, you know, light overcomes the darkness. And that's what happens when we share our story. Light is brought into it and healing takes place. And of course, Satan doesn't want us to share our stories because that is what happens. But I think that, that Lee proves to us, you know, it's so important for us to share those struggles and what God has done in our lives. Well, and I loved how she uh, jokingly said, you know, I grew up Presbyterian. And by the way, we don't share our our dirty laundry. So I I personally related to Lee because Mm -hmm. her house is messy and her boys did travel sports. I mean, as you said, Katie, the quintessential American family. One thing we know about addiction is that no one is exempt. And so I'm sure the the community of Tupelo, they probably looked at this family as the American dream. Mm -hmm. And for her, again, to to share a mother's heart. And, And for those of of us moms that have sons, they they hold a special place in our hearts. And I could certainly hear that in Lee's sharing. I loved how the community came around her. Mm. Our, our team leader in Tupelo, Tina Rose, who she references the Rose family in her story, I think was instrumental in gathering community around this family. And then for um, the reader family to say, you know, we were crushed, mm-hmm. we were broken, but God did not mm-hmm. leave us. And that is the story of hope that we want to walk away with. I learned so much at the end when she was talking about speaking with Wilson about what could she have done differently mm-hmm. and was this her fault? I'm just so thankful to her for giving that piece of wisdom. You know, that you even when talking about studying for the algebra test or the history <laughs> mm-hmm. test, my son had his first high school exam this morning and one of my thoughts was... I didn't quiz him. Am I a bad mom? Yeah. And the the freedom in that, whether it's something as small as studying for a test or something as large as being unaware of his addiction and wondering what you could have done differently is not a weight that we're designed to carry. Mm-hmm. That's the Lord's mm-hmm. and we give it to him and he carries that weight. That's right. We thank you so much for listening today. And if this is if this is a story that's happened in your life and you want to reach out to Lee, or if the Lord has spoken to you through this, let us know. Reach out and you can email us at info at storytellerslab.org. You can send us a message on Instagram or Facebook. And, and we would love to connect you with Lee. Her, her hope is to bring other moms hope. That was her number one reason in sharing this story. So we hope you have a great week. Let us know if we can pray for you and we will talk to you next week. Bye.